0: Hello, and welcome to Prism. Prism is a design-oriented podcast hosted by me, Dan Hardin. Like a glass prism that reveals the color hidden inside white light, this podcast will reveal the inside story behind innovation, especially the people that make it happen. My aim is to uncover each guest's unique point of view, their insights, their methods, or their own secret motivator, perhaps, that fuels their creative genius. Joanna Pena-Bickley is a design technologist and pioneer in AI-aided generative design. She is regarded as the mother of cognitive experience design. Joanna wears multiple hats and currently serves as head of Human FX research and design for Alexa devices at Amazon. Joanna's imagination and visionary executive design leadership has resulted in work that has been internationally awarded and used by millions of customers. She is fueled by a mission to design magical inventions that work for everyone, everywhere, and every day. So I am really pleased to be talking with you. Thank you for joining us. And let's just have kind of a casual conversation about what you do and how you do it. Let me start with, and, and, and good morning.
1: So good morning to you too. Thanks so much for having me. It's an <laughs> honor. That's one heck of an intro. I certainly appreciate it. Um, it actually started to, as you continued down the line, I went, wow, I'm a little long in the tooth. Um, but I still, <laughs> here's what I'll tell you, long in the tooth, but still skipping into work every day.
0: So speaking toward that, generative design, everybody's starting to talk about it more. It is one of the faster growing areas of design. Mm-hmm. I, I think you could say it's about the marriage of design and artificial intelligence. But can you explain for our listeners, more in lay terms, yeah. what is generative design?
1: So let me talk to you but first about the purpose, and then I'm going to give you the, 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 just the most lay term definition. We are going through a time of intense automation. Generative design is actually automation in the iterative design process. And so whether you are designing software for your iPhone or for a website, um, or even um, you can look at it from animation, right? We've been actually utilizing generative design and animation for years. Um, architectural models, sounds, images. There's lots of permutations of what we design, right? And how it manifests itself. But it is generally the automation of an iterative process, but it's a little bit more, it's an intelligent automation. And if we think about it, when we first started in our careers, certainly I did, you know, design was being revolutionized by just having a desktop computer. We were moving from drafting boards, things like that, and, and actually sketching things out to computer-aided design. And now what we are seeing is intelligence uh, applied to that computer aided design in a manner that understands the parameters. Because like all designers understand, we are problem solvers, right? Put the technology aside Mm -hmm. for a second as designers, we're problem solvers. And in Mm -hmm. that problem solving process, sometimes we carry along biases. Actually, often we carry on a ton of biases. And so if you are bringing in data sources, uh, to the design process which we do today they're just manual most most design processes are still using i i consider user experience as a very traditional design practice because it's still bringing subjective information and data points in when you want to be objective and so what this allows the designer to do is balance the objective with hard data and science right and bringing in our art and skill to that science. It's actually the marriage between art and science. Mm-hmm. So it in very layman's terms, generative design is the intelligent automation of our, de- of our design tools. Um, and what does it output, right? I think that's the important thing. What is it output? The output, um, particularly when we think about um, hardware design, right, if you're an industrial mm-hmm. designer, um, mm-hmm. is if I... For instance, you know, uh, have a data model of 95% of the global population's ears, right? I might be able to come up utilizing my generative design tools, right? One, to simulate how my design will perform in the real world, right? With levels of confidence. That's number one. But number two, the second step is once you move past the simulation, it begins to offer concepts, design concepts, hundreds of design concepts that typically would have taken me months to do into minutes, shortening things that used to take us months, the concept phase, down to minutes. And it's doing this iterative machine learning, right, off of these data models in a way that it is actually producing new form factors for me to consider. Mm -hmm. And what makes that exciting for me is that that opens me up to be procuring out of the, the machine, right? To, to look at the concepts and actually be ultimately the best creative director that you can be because you're gonna wanna not look at a hundred things. You maybe wanna start narrowing down to what is the best form factor for fit or the components that you have or uh, the actual costs that you are constrained by. So the beauty of this is, is that just as we have constraints in real life, right? We have the constraint of costs, the constraint of time, the mm-hmm. stream of available materials and our supply chains. Those are things that you can input into the system, into a generative design tool. And then what you get, the output, is what the machine believes are designs that would fit within those constraints. One of those constraints that I have been so focused in on is the human body. Because the reality is, is that we actually have well-documented constraints for things like Architecture, you know, space modeling, even software, but when we talk about things like creating wearables, net new, right, net new products, um, mm-hmm. to be able to put in the constraints of the human body, which each one of us is built individually, it's actually the hardest thing to do. And so, I've really made it a mission. So, like an,
0: an ergonomic reference model, yeah, and that's—I mean—that's data. It's right.
1: absolutely data. As a matter of fact, I use the example of in the car industry, yeah, we have sure. actually been utilizing data that is roughly seventy years old. Um, and not and not always reflective of people and how they actually sit or fit into a car. The same can be said if you're a fighter pilot, you know, these things were built when maybe humans were a little bit smaller. And so you feel a a tight squeeze into cabins Mm -hmm. and cockpits and it's like that, right? Um, The first thing that uh, you ever want to do is that you want to understand your human population. And when you're trying to create a product that is a one size fits many, right? You want to try to get as close as you can with as much confidence as you can uh, to 95 to almost 100% of the general population. And this is on earth. So what does that mean? means that designers actually need to get off their tushes and they need to go to the outside world, right? Collect that data, bring that data and model it. So in my case, what we did is we went out to the world and we collected three-dimensional data on ears because I happen to work on the mm-hmm. Buds product. So you go out there and you collect that data, you bring that data back in, you model it in 3D space and time, and you use that as a primary constraint to... Machine learning models say, so, "Hey, you can't okay, go past this." Okay,
0: but now this. that doesn't go ahead. Does how do how, so from there? I mean, it seems like for producing a data foundation, mm-hmm. generative design is good. But the, the, with the word generative, how does it then generate from there from that data? Because it seems to me like you know the design process. As long as I've been doing this, there are moments where I'm like, "Well, where the heck did that come from?" There mm-hmm. are these kind of unprompted bursts of an insight, an inspiration. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes there's this unrelenting curiosity that just drives a designer forward. And it's sometimes completely illogical.
1: Mm -hmm. With
0: generative design, how can it, or do you think it needs to go more in that direction where it can sort of replicate what's going on in our own brains. This, it actually this does.
1: Of- I, th- I think that you have a misnomer. Um, so many of us think that we're so incredibly brilliant. Yes, we are brilliant as a species, but we pretty much come up with the same ideas over and over and over again. Let's be really clear. <laughs> if you watch TV today and just look at advertising for a second, you can see it, it's clear. It's a sea of sameness. There's yeah. a really great one on the sea of sameness of all the COVID ads that came out and you went, yeah, that's creativity at its best. Um, Let's be clear is that, um, you know, let's start with the generative design, um, it is mimicking the way that the brain works, right, Just, just the way that most AI is trained to do. This is a narrow AI, right? It's a narrow AI, it's not a generalized AI, so a narrow AI is about coming in and taking in inputs. One input might be body form, right? The next one might be the materials that are available to you the output of it is thousands of concepts. By the way, thousands of concepts, half of which you could not have come up with. Mm -hmm. And some of them that are radical, and you go, ha, that's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. And in reality, had you given yourself the time, you probably would have. And it does account for those things. So it's not about spitting out permutations, right? This, it isn't also, you know, it is only as brilliant as the designer that is operating it. Um, with knowing how to which levers to pull, right which levers to input, right think about it from you know and I just look at it because I'm so staked in consumer electronics, but if you took something uh, a little bit more simple in software and one of the things that you're seeing generative design do is revolutionize things like layout, right to be able to lay out creators. Mm-hmm. Well, there's only so many permutations that the grid's going to give you if you're using a 12-point grid and getting, you know, which colors. But if you put in all the constraints of your brand, what the machine can do is actually output hundreds, if not thousands, of concepts for you to start select from. And they're pixel perfect.
0: Yeah, on layout, I can see that. Now, what about on more complex systems? Like that are so influenced, perhaps, like as an industrial designer, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, sometimes you get your ideas that are, you know, maybe influenced from when you were a kid uh, and how you were interacting with something or someone. And it's just this 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 beautiful human interaction or observational skill that you may have. How does it account for things like that? Or things like cognitive embodiment, you know, like being informed by being a physical being in an environment mm-hmm. where you are touching, feeling, and understanding what's going on around you. We're, we're mm-hmm. in generative design. How does it account for those kinds of idiosyncratic aspects?
1: It's a data point that you put into the system. So for instance, if I'm building a house for cold weather and all the things that I need to those are the constraints that you would have to build in anyways. Uh, and that is simply sitting as a data point. Most of these things have been automated for years Um, Within the trades. Um, So, if you are in architecture, if you're in construction of any kind, these are things that are built into your AutoCAD. Now, what we're doing is there is algorithmic accord in taking in those inputs in order to get the right outputs. But I'm going to give you a really great example. One of my favorite examples of this is actually one that is by Autodesk and is in the automotive industry. And in that particular way, they are essentially building, um, it's a race car, but it's supposed to take, you know, what it's supposed to have the aerodynamics uh, to help it gain a little bit of lift because it is a race car that's supposed to be in mountainous areas. One of the things that you realize that what it is, is one of the inputs, right? You can, you start with a baseline of something that maybe inspired you many things, and then you work from there. It isn't dissimilar. Mm -hmm. It is still you know, you still have to put those inputs, but the beautiful thing of it is actually mm-hmm. started to look like biomimicry. What does that mean? More natural uses of the material, right? Or actually starting to look like a flying squirrel. And sometimes, if you looked at the skeletal, you know, the skeletal outline of a flying squirrel, and then you looked at this vehicle, you went, "Huh, that's pretty remarkable, right?" Mm-hmm, that it's yes. that you, you're saying, "Well, we, you know, I'm sitting outside," or you know, Da Vinci, the mo- one of the most, you know best things that he did was see a leaf twirling and there became the helicopter, right? A machine has the capability of taking in those environmental aspects and actually outputting more natural, more human solutions than sometimes we're capable of making. And sometimes they're more elegant because it doesn't just put them out, you have to refine, it's a process, right? It's, think about it this, it's an iterative design process that involves a program that generates a certain number of outputs to a certain number of those constraints, and the designer fine-tunes it just as we're fine-tuning. You know, we used to sit with an eraser and fine-tune our ideas as we got more information by kind of selecting which things you're going to change in those input values. And, you know, it, you essentially, I'm sure you've heard of things like GANs, right? And yeah, sure. so it, a really great example of this is a GAN, right? And so the machine's getting uh, to learn over time, and what it's doing is retaining those learnings, and so just as a designer learns to refine and program, right, that iteration uh, and the, even the iteration of the design goals become further defined over time. Well, the machine accounts for that, and so what it, you know, when I go back to, you know, algorithmic design, generative design is about an iterative process of automation, but utilizing data intelligence, right, to infuse what those inputs are. And what you get is really remarkable outputs, which are products you know, and, and new ideas. Once I have often looked at it and I, you know, I step away because I think, look, we as designers are control freaks and we think we're the most brilliant people in the world. Step away from your ego for a minute, uh, humble yourself because a really good designer humbles themselves and says, I'm prepared for people to vomit on my invention. I'm yes. prepared for people not to accept it. And when you do that, you go wait might i have an assistant a design assistant i consider you know the kind of generative design that i have is not taking my job over in fact it's it's making the mundane portions of my job um more palatable because i'm able to retain yeah right i'm able to retain where we're going
0: i wanted to drill into that because i'm guessing a lot of listeners are thinking oh my god you know is my job threatened here moving forward in the future it is
1: let me let me (laughs) start with this. It is if you don't sharpen your skills.
0: Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it is a tool and as a designer, you can design what you were describing before as the levers. If you are designing the levers and controlling the input and helping to design that software, then maybe you can bring it closer toward a solution where you can feel as a creator part of it. And it has simply helped you. It's an extension of your solution. Yeah. And and make it hopefully more universally appealing to the end user.
1: That's right. What I would tell you is that you, it's always an extension of you. Just like our computer was an extension of us, this is an extension of us. And I think one of the things that makes the design even more intelligent over and over, right, is in your uh, in the definition phase of what you're doing, not to stop defining the data inputs. Um, So often we think, oh, we're going to do all this research at the front and then stop that research and then go make the product. But you should be feeding in new data inputs as the world is changing Mm because the world changes every day and your design needs to adapt with it. And what it allows you to do as a designer is actually keep up with the world.
0: Does Does it make your design a little more clinical?
1: No. In fact, it comes up often with solutions that are not as right angled <laughs> as we'd like them to be. Uh, and I'll use that uh, generative design piece. If you just, if listeners go and Google um, Autodesk generative design, what you will find is they make them more organic. Um, and often the structure of something feels more like things that are in nature.
0: Yes, I the, the best examples that I've seen like NASA doing studies of mm-hmm. generative design, they are biomimicry. Yep. Um, do you think it will influence a new perspective, a new style, a new a new way of thinking about design as a result?
1: Um, I think so. And I think so for a couple of uh, reasons. Let me start with, let's start with a, a new style. I think styles uh, need to be adaptable to culture.
0: Couldn't agree more.
1: And they're often, style is reflective of the culture you're coming from. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think is important, reinvent those styles in the world that we need today, Right not for fast fashion or not for fast architecture, but things that endure, things that are much more about a circular design, ones that aren't going to produce harm to the world and to your communities. I
0: think that's a huge benefit for generative design to, to get us to think more circular. But what you said, there are a moment ago about culture, yep. can culture be programmed into generative design? I suppose it could, just like any other factor, sure. like you were talking about the human body. Culture yep. is, uh, one could say it's a, it's a construct built on various um, elements that make us feel a certain way when we see it. We feel more connected to our, our own culture.
1: It is. And one of the things that I have seen in computer vision over the years, um, particularly of like traffic patterns, which was a really interesting one to take a study on. Um, you know, there's a ton of computer vision being utilized in the world of uh, autonomous mobility. And in that space, um, you know, culturally, we move about the planet very differently. Um, and those observations are being made today. As you know, as you and I are speaking. You know, systems are being. You know, who stops, who doesn't, and you know how do the red lights function, and how do people walk on streets? All of these things are being observed. They're being observed in a manner in which it's data collection, right? Today one might consider that very much in a, um, in a scary state. But in reality, um, you know, when we start to look at things like computer vision, it certainly has its faults. When you start, there is no silver bullet to it all, but it is observing culture. It is observing how culture is evolving and how culture behaves. Um, and the things, though, that the designer still brings are those cultural influences in in the decisions that they make about the design. What is important and what is not important. Mm -hmm. And that still resides in the hands of the designer.
0: So it forces a designer to be using a generative design process. I think you have to be more disciplined and think out of the box, Mm -hmm. be more systematic, and to think maybe more like a conductor would, Mm -hmm. where you have to be aware that, there could be an emphasis of a piccolo at just the right moment. I need to go program this element. Mm-hmm. What advice can you give to those designers that that maybe think more with their hands and see design more as a craft and something to be kind of explored in a less systematic way and I think a lot of designers are very linear in the way they think. And maybe that's not so great, mm-hmm. certainly for creating these more sustainable, bigger system solutions that we need in the world today. Mm-hmm. How can we craft generative design to be maybe a little bit more uh, digestible by designers that don't think like software engineers? Mm-hmm. Like like for me to sit down like, okay, I need to go ask a, a programmer to help me with this aspect to get this answer that I want. Mm-hmm. You see where I'm going with this?
1: Kind of. And here's what I would tell you. I would tell you that craft isn't just what you make with our hands. It is also what you make with your computer. This is right. It also requires a, an element of judgment in there of what we believe is pleasing in aesthetic and what are the affordances that you give, let's say in software um, for something to happen where I would, you know, where I preface this that it, this is a craft. This is your craft. And if you're really good at it, we've always had to orchestrate. Great design isn't just the, let me put my heads down and get the work done, right? Great design comes with the planning, right? The taking in the environmental factors and then the actual production. And the actual production is still where the nitty gritty get, you know, where the rubber meets the road from a blueprint to, you know, here's a, you know, a net new device. Um, or a net new product, or a website, um, or a piece of architecture, or an animation. Um, and I actually point to musicians. Some of the best musicians, pop musicians, um, r and musicians today, are utilizing generative and new and inventive ways as a part of their craft, an evolution of their craft. If you never evolve your craft, then you're in the wrong business, if you thought that you know I was going to come and I was only going to do stone masonry this one way, at some point you you got to actually back up and go wait. The way that I always colored things maybe isn't the right way to do it, and it is about being a designer is about learning. Um, being a designer, right, is is about problem solving, and you shouldn't be approaching it the same way over and over. And you're you know you're asking to write yourself out of a career.
0: <laughs> I love the way you're you're describing this and it really should open everybody's minds as to there is another way that can make your design even better i think it's it's similar to the transition we all went through when we were drafting mm-hmm. on boards to doing early cad and I remember the scorn that was, oh, there's no way you're going to be able to create, you know, good organic design. And then, you know, it evolved and evolved. And companies like Autodesk proved mm-hmm. that it was very possible, you know, with NURBS modeling. Mm-hmm. I, th- I see it as an opportunity. Do you think there are certain fields of design where this applies better, more, more readily than others?
1: I would, let me tell you, I would tell you that there are fields of design there far in advance of other fields of design. So let me start with... There are fields of design in architecture that are already using this. If you go take a look at Zaha Hadid, her first work, the, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Zaha Hadid or your listeners are. Oh, yeah, but, very, of course. You yeah. know, do a Google. She's probably one of the most brilliant architects and designers of, I think, the last century. Agreed. You know, she puts the, the BS of the Swiss Le Corbusier to shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they totally they should have wanted to be her when they grew up. And it's so humanistic. Yeah, totally. And one of her signature styles, right, was being the queen of curve. But it wasn't necessary from the it was not from a style perspective. It actually came out of what made sense in the shape of Earth and what made sense in the shape of um, the way that it was going to be used. It was just better usage. And so also
0: structural load. That's that is engineering. Absolutely. There's there's beauty in that.
1: And so, with that, if you think about it, it's the science and it's the art coming together. Great design is those two things coming together, right? It is the design and the engineering coming together. Um, the act of design is a verb. Let's remember that. Um, and we're at a place in an inflection point where, as a you know, as a crafts person, you're particularly within most of your fields, you are seeing this evolution happen before our very eyes, and. I think one of the things that we're really promoting, whether I'm at Amazon or in the design core, is upskilling, right? To keep up and keep pace with the times that we live because the problems we're solving are far more complex than what we were in the last century. We're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, right? And in this fourth industrial revolution, we've just come through a pandemic. Um, One of the things that, you know, uh, that we are also seeing is a complete evolution of the way that we communicate through IOT. So that is everything and everyone will be connected. And that's a pretty remarkable feat if we start to think about it that way. Um, And then the next part of that is, you know, the way that we move around the planet from autonomous mobility to planes and, you know, trains, all of this is going undergoing a radical transformation. And what we know for sure is we can't do it the way we did it the last hundred years. We actually have to be smarter about it. We have to put the earth and our communities first um, and begin to think about the resiliency of humans. And when we talk about human centered, I say, throw that for a second. Just, you need to be human obsessed. And so if you think about it from that perspective, then to apply your skills in a new and inventive way so that what you are building is resilient for the next hundred years is, I think, really critical for everybody in design. So, yes, you know, is it impacting, I'd say, industrial design in a major way right now, right? Um, but we've been seeing this, the evolution in software, for a very long time. You know, the blurring lines between voice design and natural language understanding. Designers have to know, know both, right, to, to survive or else, sure. you know, you're going to be relegated to making wireframes and then the machine's going to do it for you as opposed to you actually really producing the the thought leadership and upskilling your talent in a way that allows you to produce more inventive things down the road that are resilient
0: right right you know i think we're in trouble the world <laughs> oh yeah so and, and and a lot of it you know i think designers especially in the last century felt like design and creativity we're going to create our way out of messes and we boldly and egotistically went forward thinking that way mm-hmm. And what you've realized is we pretty much create a big mess. Mm-hmm. So I think we we absolutely have to embrace generative design in order to and this i'm I'm hearing a clear message from you that that this could be a major contributor to helping with some of the major big systemic problems yeah. that designers aren't very good at, quite frankly.
1: No, 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 we're you know what because we introduce we have biases about what we like and what we don't like. Because they're all based on historic right? Oh, we studied this in school, right? So what can, it makes it very hard to imagine forward and what could be what what should be. Um, and you know not I, only that, yeah.
0: I think designers are good at designing individual solutions to very individual problems. That we would are be good correct. at designing this we are good at designing the cell, but not necessarily the body. We don't seem to care about the body. Yeah, and it's it's about time. And I don't know if a single individual human brain has the capacity to solve some of these massive problems. So
1: no, and that's why we look at the collective effort. You know, it, look, we are we live in the entanglement. Think about it from you know in the last uh, in the last industrial revolution we were amidst the enlightenment. We're actually in the entanglement now. Most of the problems that we face, one, are human made, and two, incredibly complex. Why? Because on one hand, humans don't like to change their behavior. Let's start there. They don't.
0: And we're so full of biases. I mean, we all are.
1: So anything that you can do, right? To take a step back, say, is there something that helps me overcome that? And think about the systems. Look laterally as opposed to through a silo, right? I always say, linked, not ranked. That isn't just in society, right? Um, it isn't just with you know, in the women's movement, but is in the way that we work. We can be networked and think laterally versus in silos of industry. And I think one of the things that um, we have to do as communities is actually hold a higher standard around linking the complexity of a problem, not in order to stop the solution. I think this is important. Talk about the complexity of a problem, talk about the complexity of what the challenges are on water systems and in underrepresented minority communities. Talk about those things, gather the data and use that to build something new and look to do it in your own communities and empower other people to design their solutions in their communities. And I think that's one of the critical things of stepping back and taking our arrogant egos aside as designers and say, we will impose ourselves on society once again. The earth is telling you something very different right now, which is I'm going to impose my society on you. And if you are not resilient enough, it is so complex, these problems of climate, that if you are not Thinking in a system's way, your efforts will unravel.
0: Yes, very, very profound. I couldn't agree more. How do we move forward? Like for listeners, yeah. I think they're, they're saying, yes, agree, got it. Yeah, But how can I enact on this? It's with generative design. Are there tools that are readily available? Absolutely. Et cetera.
1: Absolutely. So let me give you a real quick tip to your listeners. Go to cognitiveexperience.design. I actually list the way that I have trained myself. um, And there is no shortage of YouTube videos, what have you. Let me start with what comes next if you've decided that you're ready to upskill is you have to do the learning. And that's the hard work, right? That's the hard work of everything that you knew before, it's time to go back to school. And in that, sometimes that school can be in front of a computer, right? Sometimes that school can be in front of a 3D printer. (laughs) Um, You know, it is about using the collective knowledge that sits on the internet today and moving past the BS that's going on in social media and getting hyped up over that and actually focusing in on the solutions because the solutions are sitting in front of you. And there's actually an enormous group of designers who have gone out and created, if you just go to Generative Design 101, that actually produce uh, videos and books and things like that. And so my advice to it was just actually, let's go about, there's, you're not gonna learn it in a day. Let's, let's set expectations right. You didn't learn to be a designer in a day, by the way. You probably went to school, some of us went to school, some of us didn't, some of it was self-taught and then that, and then that expanded over time, right? Well, we have to expect that same thing here. We're amidst a global, a great global reset. And here's your opportunity. Now, here's the important thing for us American designers. Um, I have news for you, we're behind. During the pandemic while we were arguing about masks and political bullshit, okay? The Koreans actually, this was one of the most brilliant things, signed a digital new deal. And in that digital new deal, they decided with Singapore, also was another country who did this, they were not only going to digitize their entire infrastructure and give everybody free internet, but access to upskill their skills while we were all bunkered down. So if you didn't use your time in the, you know, during the pandemic um, to learn something new, you know, maybe you cooked bread, fabulous, then you should start a bakery. Um, but if you, if you took time, you know, one of the things I did was actually I started to learn advanced data modeling. I went to a code academy. You know, signed up for a, an online boot camp and put myself to like, okay, I'm gonna build this one thing, right? I'm gonna go build this chatbot, but it, this chatbot is actually not gonna be um, programmed. It's gonna do learning through the way that the conversation moves along. And so to be able to do and teach yourself and do those kinds of experiments in your time, in your spare time is critical. If you are young and you're a new student to this, go take a Python class, do yourself a favor just so that you have the basis an understanding of how the program works, right? It's not so that you have to program Python uh, perfectly. That isn't what generative is about. It is though about being able to read the Python and see where the parameters in the code are so that you can make the changes to the thing. And the last part that I would say is be inventive with the way that we collect data, right? Um, We have so much technology at our fingertips. I remember when we first started our iterative process of collecting data on people's ears, we were utilizing calipers and things like that. Um, And we were utilizing it because audiologists had said, this is how we do it. Then I went and found an audiology clinic um, in Oklahoma City called Hearts for Hearing, who if you are at all in the consumer electronics making hearables, you need to go talk with these guys. They are. You know, they put MIT and Stanford to shame as their knowledge because they're one of the world's leaders in cochlear implants. And what Dr. Jace Wolf essentially proposed was let's use these 3D scanners, just the way we do 3D printers, 3D scanners to scan the human ear, right? Or to take a mold, scan that and create a database out of that. Now you have all the parameters of the ear. Now you understand how the the physicality of how the ear works. And so you start doing that and you model the data. Here's what I'll tell you, every aspect of what we do is changing, but it is changing because we're utilizing technology in new inventive ways. Um, you know, It used to be that we would you know, take and video things, right? Now we can use machine learning to do analysis of those videos and pull out insights that maybe we didn't see in the first time. We didn't see that behavior or something that was different. So my advice to people is get your hands dirty. For those of you that like hands-on, there is nothing more hands-on than learning to code. Um, That's number one. And then the number two piece is picking up a book, um, getting your Alexa device to read it to you. If you, you If you don't want to go chapter by chapter, listen to the audio version of it. You are a YouTube search away from how to start with generative design in your field. You can put in generative design plus the field. So generative design, industrial design, generative design, right? Software or, you know, an interface design. All of those things are are there for you, but it's really about trying to craft a roadmap and decide that you're going to actually now then apply that knowledge to an experiment, right? Choose one thing. It could be anything.
0: Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, On top of that, for those that don't want to sit down and learn how to code, just thinking about it and incorporating it into your design process and knowing its power yeah. and offering it to your, your client or your, you know, your team yeah. as a means of getting you to a better place.
1: Well, I think it's setting a, being aware of it and setting a new expectation for your design organization, right? Becoming aware of it, understanding it at a high level. And I do a lot of, by the way, I do a lot of training um, through cognitiveexperience.design in the world of teaching the basics of AI, what it can't do, what it can do. Right? What are the products that are out there and how to use them differently? But how artists are doing it, you know, how you're seeing it in UI construction through codeless tools like things like FireDrop or Grid V.3, or even uh, one of my favorite is in the area of type. And um, there's a project called Mutative Design Around Type that is doing some really remarkable things. And then in pictures, uh, you are seeing things like Logo Shuffle uh, a fantastic, it's, again, it's using generative design that's choosing your favorite styles, you pick your favorite colors and voila, it generates millions of logos for you to pick through.
0: Crazy, um, that's crazy. Variable
1: fonts is the one, parametric. So it's utilizing parametric uh, typography based on the idea of like an interpolation from several key variables, right? Like the height, the width, the optical size of it. And then it produces new types of fonts for you. So there is a, a ton of tools that are out there. You can go to cognitiveexperience.design. I list them as I find them and as our teams are utilizing them. And as designers, really, I've really tried to use the design core as a community to share these tools to the world because they are going to be, you know, if, you're, if you don't want to be able to control your canvas, then don't learn to code. Okay, like let's be very clear about something. When you want to control your canvas, the, the canvas that you're working with, having a knowledge and idea about taking a 101 class helps a lot. But if you're looking for WYSIWYG tools that are get, offering constraints, but still get you to the, a, a similar output, maybe not as custom, but a similar output, then there are codeless tools that are uh, available to you.
0: What can you say? Last My last question would be, what can you say to those individuals that are afraid of AI. You hear so many people, oh, no, I don't want to go near that. Uh, they talk about the singularity. And how can you quell some of these fears? It seems ridiculous to me, but maybe the word artificial is, is the wrong way to call yeah. it so I don't
1: know. when I was at IBM working with Watson, we used to call it augmented intelligence. Okay. There's nothing artificial about it. <laughs> um, it is about augmented intelligence um, you know, some people call it algorithmic intelligence, realizing that it is an evolution of the software process. Um, you know, others will take a look at it and still feel fear. I, I've got to blame Hollywood a little bit for this. And I, I hate blaming the media, but for crying out loud, could we do one movie, just one, where AI was the hero? And I and to me the hero isn't necessarily thing I think um, Iron Man does a better job because it's augmenting his abilities of what it's actually there to do today mm-hmm. um, but you know when we think about how it is there let's be very clear if you never learn about it it will replace your job yeah okay again it's yeah.
0: it's it's human nature fear of the unknown and that's that's how we see this so but
1: But no, right? We as human beings should be seeking not to stand still in time and allow things to happen to us. We actually do the majority of humans on the earth, not all, but the majority of humans have free will. And in that space where you have free will, my dare to you is to try and learn something new every day. And if you're able to take that, you would approach this in a way that says, wow, I could actually be, an amazing artist, or an, you know, an amazing designer. Um, some of the things that I see it going on in generative art are just mind blowing. I'm actually thinking, as opposed to just investing in art these days, I've just you know bought a home and putting up screens that only do generate my favorite generative designs, um, because it is so. The craft is so beautiful. It's finite, right? And you're starting to see a market rise in the area of crypto art. Which is really important for us to understand and know that when you when you fall in love with it and to know that it was made by a human and a machine, we're at a point where we're, you know, we're kind of at day one of human-machine integration. And that's what this is. It's not the machine taking over. If you let it, it will. It's about you becoming much more in tune with the tools and the machines that are here and available to you so that we can solve these really tough and hard problems, but enjoy the magic.
0: Of the way that we solve them. I absolutely love your passion and enthusiasm for this topic. I simply cannot thank you for spending this time with me enough. I think your next book should be, or your book should be, Overcoming Entanglement with Generative design. Design. You bring up so many profound and provocative points on this topic. And I thank you so very much, Joanna.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. You too.
0: Thank you for listening to Prism. Follow us on whipsaw.com or your favorite streaming platform. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking episodes soon.
1: Prism is hosted by Dan Hardin, Principal Designer and CEO of Whipsaw. Produced by Gabrielle Whelan and Isabella
0: Glenn. Mix and sound design by Eric Buell.